0: Hello everyone, this is Mark C. Crowley and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. It's still very hard for some managers to get their head around the idea that caring deeply about the people they lead is essential to driving sustainably great performance. Just to give you an idea of the mindset, the national sales manager at one of America's largest insurance companies once told me in his words that he absolutely refuses to connect with his employees because doing so would undermine his ability to drive results through fear and intimidation when he found himself behind in his goals. And if he believed this at his level, we can imagine his toxic and misinformed leadership philosophy got cascaded throughout his entire sales organization. Now, a man can dream, of course, and my dream in this moment is that this sales leader from the dark ages is listening into this specific episode of the podcast, and that's because at some of the top tech firms throughout Silicon Valley, my guests today repeatedly prove that caring personally about people establishes the trust and respect that's needed for leaders to not just set higher standards of performance, but to consistently meet them. Kim Scott has worked as an executive coach at both Twitter and Dropbox, and was a training executive at both Google and Apple. She developed the Managing at Apple class that became the foundation for her best-selling book, Radical Candor, a book heartily endorsed by Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg, her former boss. What I gleaned in reading Kim's book is that she's a very direct, no-nonsense manager who also happens to have a highly evolved heart. In no uncertain terms, she asserts that managers don't have to make the binary choice between being a pushover or a jerk. And Radical Candor is about caring personally while also challenging directly. It's about soliciting criticism to improve one's own leadership effectiveness, and it's also about providing guidance that helps other people grow. Ultimately, it focuses on praise but doesn't shy away from criticism. The goal of managing this way is to help the leader love their work and the people they work with. We're about to dig deeply into all of this. And as we begin, I would like to extend a very, very warm welcome to you. Welcome to the podcast, Kim Scott.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm excited for our conversation.
0: Me too. I've been looking forward to it. It's early Monday morning. I've been looking forward to this all weekend long. Kim, in your introduction, you will just get right at this. You write that the very heart of being a good boss anywhere on earth is a good relationship. And then you say, the term you found that best describes this is radical candor. So to kick things off, tell us how you landed on this term and why you felt the management candor you're recommending needs to be radical.
1: It's a great question. So I really believe that command and control does not work it doesn't work in today's economy even though it has been so much a part of management philosophy for so many decades and i think the thing that does work is a relationship a relationship between a boss and and their direct report and the reason why i describe radical candor as the way to approach that relationship is that you need to do two things at the same time to have a productive relationship between boss and direct report. The first is you both need to care personally about one another, not just sort of care about professional development, but care at a very human level. But at the same time, you need to be able to challenge each other directly. You need to be able to say what is truly great about working with that person, and also you need to be able to speak up when things are going off the rails. And the sooner you speak up, the sooner you can get things back on the rails. So that's what I mean by radical candor. I will be radically candid about radical candor, which is that I've gotten a lot of feedback that term has caused, in some circles, some confusion, Sometimes I'll work at a company, and I'll go into a meeting, we're trying to roll out the idea of radical candor, and someone will walk into a meeting and say, in the spirit of radical candor, and then they'll proceed to act like a garden variety jerk. (laughs) And that's not the spirit of radical candor, that's the spirit of what I call obnoxious aggression. So for people who feel that this may be happening in their organization, I offer the term compassionate candor it's still the overall arching philosophy is radical candor. But if you think about radical candor as that ability to care personally and challenge directly at the same time, some people find it easier to think of that in terms of compassionate candor than radical candor.
0: I actually really love that. And I'm very glad that we started off with that, because when I hear the word radical, I'm like, that's out there, you know, that's (laughs) pronounced. That's, you know what I mean? It's overwrought in a sense. And and interestingly, I had Patty McCord on this past summer Mm -hmm. and, you know, her thinking, her book is called Radical Honesty. And I kind of challenged her and said, you know, why can't honesty stand on its own? (laughs) You know, why why does it need to be radical? You know, and I think, honestly, in some respects, and, you know, sharing this with you and not my audience, that she may have been prepared for that question. You know what I mean? Because I think they really do in that environment practice that more of a, you know, there's an edge to it that I didn't pick up in your book at all. So I'm really glad you said that. So thank you.
1: Yes. Oh, well, thank you. It's one of the reasons why we published a second edition of the book, because this confusion was so pronounced in so many places. What I meant by the word radical is sort of essential, sort of in the Saint-Exupéry sense of the word, that what is essential can only be seen with the heart. So that's what I meant. But I think words are prone to misinterpretation. A two-word title that's catchy is great because it's catchy, but it's also dangerous because it's catchy.
0: That's very articulate. And you know, it's interesting because I use the word heart. I love the quote that you just used. And heart is another one that just You know, it casts a spell on people and many people just tend to interpret it as, "What? this is like crazy nonsense that you would ever use that kind of a word, you know, and so people don't really dig into it. As I read your book, I got a deeper understanding of what you meant by radical, but standalone, it does seem like you're just going up to people and like... You got to fix this and you better improve this or (laughs) you're you're like all over people. And that's not your message at all.
1: No, it's not. And true confession here, part of the reason why I used a term like radical candor is that I'm a woman and I wanted it to be seen as strong. And I think perhaps it would have been easier for me to launch a book called Compassionate Candor if I were a man. So gender bias always plays into this stuff.
0: Well, touche. Um, A woman told me that, we're getting a little off, but it's an interesting topic to me, that she said, you must stop using that language, lead from the heart, because people are going to think it's really soft and weak. So she said, call it killer engagement. (laughs) So, (laughs) So we're both getting this like similar advice to go in a way that stands out. But truth is, your book is doing really, really well. So people are responding to the notion of radical candor. But I love that you've sort of softened it in the sense that the message isn't soft, but the the language of compassionate candor is, if you really care about people, you will give them very direct communication. And that's what leadership and management is all about, right?
1: Yes. And it's really hard to do that. It's difficult. It is a hard hard skill to master and the results can be seen in in terms of profitability in terms of productivity in terms of innovation so you really do get measurable results when you can manage to pull this off but it's difficult
0: all boiled down achieving called compassionate candor Happens when managers care deeply about their people while challenging them to grow, improve, and excel. So that's really your combination. And the first question I had when I was reading your book was, How'd you get there? How'd you figure that out?
1: Well, like many things, the school of hard knocks taught me a lot. One of the most painful experiences I had in my career came when I was leading a startup that I had co-founded. I was the CEO of this startup, and I had hired this guy. We'll call him Bob. And Bob was ch- smart. He was charming. He was funny. He would do stuff like we were at a manager off-site And we were playing one of those endless get-to-know-you games that nobody really felt we had time to be playing in that moment in time. But Bob was the guy who had the courage to raise his hand and say, I can see we're all stressed out because I care about you folks. I'm going to offer an idea that's going to be really fast and it will help us get to know each other. Whatever his idea was, if it was fast, we were down with it. And so Bob said, "Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to go around the table, and we're going to confess what candy our parents used when potty training us. Weird, but fast. Weirder yet, we all remembered. And then for the next, for uh, for Hershey kisses, right here. I'm going to ask. Yeah, you you have to ask. For the next ten months, every time there's a tense moment in a meeting." Bob will whip out just the right piece of candy for the right person at the right moment. So a little quirky, but but Bob brought a little levity to the office, a little lightheartedness, a little warmth. We loved Bob. One problem with Bob, he was doing terrible work. He would hand stuff in to me, and there was shame in his eyes, shame in his eyes, And I was so puzzled because Bob had this great resume, this great history of accomplishments. I can't figure out what's going on with Bob. I learned much later the problem was that Bob was smoking pot in the bathroom three times a day, which maybe explained all that candy. Perhaps. But but (laughs) in the moment, at the time, I didn't know what was going on. And so I would say something to Bob like – Bob, you're so awesome. You're so smart. This is a great start, but maybe you can make it a little bit better. And of course he never does. And this goes on for 10 months. The whole team is suffering from his bad work, having to redo his work, having to fix his mistakes. And eventually the inevitable happens. And I realize if I don't tell Bob what's going on, I'm going to lose all my best performers. So I sit down to have a conversation with Bob that I should have started 10 months previously. And when I'm finished explaining, and by the way, let's go back to what I was saying to Bob. Let's go back to this. Oh, Bob, you're so awesome. Maybe you can make it a little bit better. That tendency to avoid hurting somebody's feelings, but also avoid telling them something they really need to hear. That is what I call ruinous empathy. That's what happens when we do care personally, but we fail to challenge directly. And if I'm really honest with myself about what was going on there, it wasn't pure ruinous empathy. It was also a little bit of what I call manipulative insincerity. And that's what happens when you neither care nor challenge. So why was I being manipulatively insincere? The problem was that Bob was popular. He was much loved in the office, and he was also kind of sensitive, and I was afraid that if I told Bob in no uncertain terms that his work wasn't nearly good enough, he would get upset. He might even start to cry. And then everyone would think I was a big you-know-what. Mm-hmm. So I, I was concerned about my own reputation as well as about Bob's feelings. So a little bit of ruinous empathy with, uh, with, unfortunately, a dose of manipulative insincerity there. So when I finally sat down to tell Bob how things stood 10 months too late, Bob sort of, when I was finished talking, pushed his chair back from the table He looked me right in the eye and he said, why didn't you tell me? Painful moment. As that question is going around in my head with no good answer, he looks at me again and he says, why didn't anyone tell me? I thought you all cared about me. And now I realize that I have failed Bob in a bunch of different ways. I have failed to solicit feedback from Bob. Another mistake that people make about radical is, they think it's all about the boss giving the employee feedback. It should really start with the boss soliciting feedback from the employee. And I had failed to do that. I didn't know what was going well from Bob's perspective. And I also didn't know what I might be doing that was contributing to the problem. Maybe, maybe I was doing something that was bothering him so much that he was forced to toke up in the bathroom <laughs> three times a day. I don't know because I never asked him. I never solicited feedback from him. So never solicited in particular criticism from him. I also failed to give him both praise that was meaningful. The kind of praise I was giving him was really just a head fake. And I failed to tell him when his work wasn't nearly good enough. And probably worst of all, I failed to create the kind of environment in which everyone would tell Bob what was genuinely good about his work and about working with him and when he was going off the rails. And because I had failed Bob in all these different important ways, I'm now firing him because of it. Not, not so nice after all, right? But it was too late to save Bob. All I could do in the moment was make myself a very solemn promise that I would never make that mistake again, and that I would do everything in my power to help other people avoid making that mistake. And that's really, in a nutshell, why I wrote Radical Candor, and why I came up with the Radical Candor 2x2 framework, and why I'm talking to you today, because those moments are so bad for everybody. It was bad for me, of course, it was worse for Bob, and it was terrible for the whole team. So that's an example of the kind of mistake that every manager I've ever met has made and the kind of mistake I'm trying to help managers avoid making.
0: Okay, so fantastic story. And you would think, so you get to the other side of this, and you would think that your conclusion would be, hey, I missed every opportunity to tell this guy that he was underperforming even, you know, when you would submit work to me or someone on my team and you would look at it and you'd say, oh, man, I got to go back and redo this. So you're investing your time or your employees time to redo this guy's work. You're missing the opportunity to say, hey, this is not acceptable. You got to go back and redo this. This is either too long or too short or indirect or not expressive or you really don't understand the point or whatever. Give that kind of feedback. So you've taken that and said, this is what I need to do going forward. But you've clung to, and in a meaningful way, the idea that you still need to be caring with people. And so part of me is thinking, well, many managers would get to the other side of this and just say, you know what I missed here was being direct with people. And you can ignore the caring part, but you didn't. So how did you land there?
1: So I couldn't ignore the caring part because part of the reason why I was failing to tell him when he was screwing up is that I didn't want to be a jerk. I would rather not be a manager than have to become a jerk. And I think very often, the reason why leaders fail to offer radical candor is that they feel that there's this false dichotomy between being a jerk and being effective. And that is a false dichotomy. Early in my career, when I was at this same startup, I came into work one morning and I got the same article emailed to me by like 10 different people. And it was an article about how people would rather have a boss who's a total jerk but really competent than one who's really nice but incompetent. And I thought, gosh, are they sending me this because I think I'm a jerk or because they think I'm incompetent? And surely those are not my two choices. And so I think that for the vast majority of people struggle with ruinous empathy, not with obnoxious aggression. And so radical candor is my effort to help people move from ruinous empathy over to radical candor, which is the most effective place to be as a leader. And my secret plot at making the world a better place is that the problem with obnoxious, I mean, there's a lot of problems with obnoxious aggression, but one of the many problems is that it's actually more effective than ruinous empathy in addition to it being Cruel, and there's some sort of moral problems with obnoxious aggression. And so, if we can just move more people out of ruinous empathy, which is where the majority of people are, over to radical candor, then we eliminate the unfair advantage that obnoxious behavior has in the world and leave the world a better place. Part of it is just that it works better. In my experience, if you say something, if you tell somebody, something in a way that is cruel, they just can't hear you. So in addition to being cruel, you're wasting your breath. So in all of these things, I think the combination of the moral advantage and the practical advantage is compelling. So I guess that's a long-winded way of answering your question.
0: No, it's um, the detail here is very, very helpful. And as I was listening to you, and this is not in your book and maybe not in your purview, but I'm hoping you might have an instinct on it. So we know that engagement hasn't really markedly gotten better over the last 15 years and job satisfaction's gotten better over the last three or four years, but it's still ridiculously low all over the world. And so what do you ascribe that to? Let me set it up in a different way. Where you kind of led me was to say that most people, if they err, they're erring on the too caring side, the too kind side, not being willing to confront performance issues and, and really challenge people to step up their game. At the same time, we've got millions of people who go to work every day, either not engaged or really unhappy. And so are we being too good to people that that's making people disengaged and unhappy? Or are there more jerk managers out there than we think there are? Or something else? No,
1: my feeling is it's rarely the case that we're being too nice if you think about this in terms of a two-by-two framework, so you have care personally on the vertical axis and you have challenge directly on the horizontal axis, the problem is rarely that we're too high on care personally. The problem is just that we're not over far enough on challenge directly and we're remaining silent when we should be speaking up. And so I think one of the biggest problems that I see in the workplace, I mean, 85% of leaders and employees and people make 85% of their mistakes in ruinous empathy. This is by far and away the most common problem. So people go to work and they know they're not growing in the way they want to grow. They know something's not quite going right, but they can't get anybody to tell them what it is. And so I think for a lot of people, Their career feels like sort of being a dead man or woman walking, a dead person walking. And that's not satisfying, (laughs) to put it mildly. It's very perplexing. So I think creating the kind of environment in which people hold on to that care. I'm not saying go down on the care personally dimension. No, it's important to care personally, but just move over on challenge directly. I think that will solve a lot of the problems. Now, there are, of course, obnoxious bosses in the world. And I think if you take a look at the population of leaders, you probably do have more obnoxious aggression among leaders than you do among the population as a whole. And so why is that?
0: I want to ask you why, but I also want to know how you flip it. Yeah. Because that's what this is all about.
1: Yeah, it is all about that. I think that part of what happens is, let's say you start a company. I see this dynamic happening over and over again. You start a company, you start it with a small number of people, and you start to achieve a certain level of, of success. And so you start to grow. You start to grow that company. And you go from a team of five to a team of 10 to a team of 100. And somewhere around 150, you no longer know everybody. And radical candor is much easier. It's easier to challenge people directly when you've built trust, when people know you care about one another. And so all of a sudden, people start pulling their punches a little bit. They quit challenging directly because they don't want to lose this care personally part of their culture. And the problem is that, as I said before, ruinous empathy is even less effective than obnoxious aggression. And so now, all of a sudden, the jerks have an advantage. And I think there's a point in time in the growth of a lot of companies when the assholes begin to win. (laughs) And the problem is that for most of us, like if you read Bob Sutton's asshole survival guide, Mm -hmm. you'll find that the most common coping mechanisms, if your boss is a real jerk, the most common coping mechanisms can be described as manipulative insincerity. And maybe that's a harsh way to describe self-protective behavior. But I think if we can break out of that, if we can challenge obnoxious behavior with radical candor, then we can begin to help the people who have gotten ahead by becoming jerks change their behavior.
0: So I'm making you the CEO of a company Mm
1: -hmm. and your
0: job is to change the culture from we'll lean into this sort of obnoxious jerk that you just described. Yeah. So there's a lot of that in this culture and people aren't happy and people are leaving and you got a mess there and you say, I want to hire people who can manage in the way that is aligned to what I know works best. So not using the radical candor language, what are the qualities that you're looking for? So what are the cornerstone requirements? So in other words, you're saying to your management team, going forward, these are the kinds of people that I want. I want to see these qualities in every single person that we hire into a management role. What would those qualities be?
1: So I think before I start looking for personality attributes, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to...
0: I'm looking for more behavioral attributes more than I am personality
1: Yeah, or even behavioral attributes. I'm going to try to create a system. I'm going to try to address it at a systemic level. I'm going to try to create a set of management systems that optimize for collaboration and that very self-consciously and proactively create consequences for bullying behavior. Because the problem with bullying behavior is that it often works, and the only way to make sure it doesn't work is to create consequences for it. So one of the things when I first got to Google, Shona Brown, who led business operations there, who designed the management systems at the company, had very consciously, eliminated sort of autocratic control or unilateral authority from anyone at the company. And no manager, no VP, no director had unilateral decision-making authority over who got fired, who got hired, who got promoted, who got a bonus. There were checks and balances at every point in the process. And that really helped sort of enforce a no-asshole rule at the company. Not that it was all sweetness and light all the time. Obnoxious aggression is a core human behavior, and you're not going to eliminate it no matter how good your systems are. But you can create a system that discourages it. And I think that was really important. So I think that's the first thing I would do. And then I would look for people with a growth mindset. People, because sort of fundamental to radical candor is is a belief that if you help people see the good in the work they do, but also when they make mistakes, then our mistakes are corrigible. So you wanna make sure you have people with a growth mindset who really are excited to help the business grow, but also the individuals grow, and who also are not growth obsessed. People who understand that great work is valuable and not everybody has to be wildly ambitious at the company. People who are able to do great work and to do it for years at a time are the very bedrock of stability on a team and you want to honor those people as well.
0: I love that. You called them rock stars, and you had a very different definition for rock stars, so call that out.
1: Yeah, so I try to be disciplined, although I think there are a couple of places in the book I should have edited, but I try to call it rock star mode and superstar mode. So what's the difference between a person who's in rock star mode versus a person who's in superstar mode? A person who's in rock star mode is great at their job, but they don't necessarily want the next big job. They don't want your job. They don't want to be Steve Jobs. They just want to do a good job. And I think those people are so important for stability on a team, for great work on a team, for deep expertise on a team. And I think very often, at least where I've made much of my career in Silicon Valley, those people get short shrift.
0: Yes. They,
1: they don't get honored in the way that they should get honored. And that's a real mistake. That's a huge mistake. Now, at the same time, you often have people who are in superstar mode. These are the people who do want to invest all of their extra energy and getting the next job, and learning something new, and growing professionally, it's important not to measure everything by promotion. But they want to grow, and they want to grow fast. People and Sometimes I call them not superstar people in, in shooting star mode. And the reason why I like shooting star mode is because they'll often not stay in your orbit very long. And you have to be able to accept and honor that. And I think the other mistake that a lot of leaders make is they instinctively want to clip the wings of people when they're in superstar mode or, or shoot, they want to try to trap that person in their orbit. And that's a huge mistake as well. You, so you want to help people grow in the way that works with their life. And there's, there's a lot of different reasons why someone might be in rock star mode. I think... Albert Einstein, when he was at the patent office, was in rock star mode. I'm sure he did a good job in the patent office, but his job was really, he took his job to support himself while he was coming up with the general theory of relativity on his own time after work. So imagine what would have happened to the world of science if he had been forced to try to take the next Step job up. on the mm-hmm. Yeah. That would have been a great loss to humanity. <laughs> there are other reasons why why people are in sort of rock star mode. Sometimes when we have young children both men and women are, you know, men are parents too, let's not forget that, are often in rock star mode. They don't want to pour all their extra energy into getting the next job. They want to pour their extra energy into raising the next generation. And that's also really valuable. It's not something that we want to give short shrift to. And as long as people are really doing a great job, they don't necessarily have to pour all their extra energy into getting the next job.
0: I love the idea of honoring the rock stars that really stood out to me. And, you know, we do this high talent, you know, high potential. And a lot of those rock stars, they're like very content to do what they're doing. And why are we not giving them opportunities to grow? Because they're not going to be the CEO of the company 10 years from now.
1: Yeah. And why are we pushing them to grow in ways they don't want to grow if they're doing a good job where they are? Also, I hate performance potential language, because what in the world like, what do you do with someone who you mark as low potential? I mean, that's a terrible label to hang around someone's neck. It also just doesn't even exist. There's no such thing as a low potential human being.
0: That theme has come up in this podcast more than just about anything. And yet you <laughs> and I know that every company has that nine box I know. that evaluation tool where some poor guy or woman is being labeled as low potential. And I can't tell you the number of times I've taken over teams where people that were handing them off to me were like, let me tell you about these three losers. And, you know, six months later, these people were on top of the heap doing remarkable work.
1: Yeah, it is the epitome of managerial arrogance to label anyone low potential. (laughs) And, uh, you know, one of the people I worked with at Apple was Scott Forstall. And I was talking to him about this and he stopped i mean it was you know there was a lot going on at apple at this time and he stopped everything he was doing and he said let's spend time thinking about changing that word words matter and i was so grateful to his leadership for helping me fight that battle against high potential low potential uh, because it's not a growth mindset and it's like one of those words that creates bad habits of thought in both managers and employees.
0: Let's talk about what it means to give employees what you call good guidance. When you were at Google, your boss was Sheryl Sandberg, just like the rest of us. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Can you tell, right? I was was very, um, very lucky. You've worked for some pretty remarkable people. Can you tell us about a time you nailed a presentation to a top executive, including Eric Schmidt at Google, the chairman, but even with the big win that you were challenged right after the meeting to do something better? So in other words, you nailed the meeting and yet the feedback you got, speak to that, but also speak to the heart in the feedback that she gave you. So it doesn't sound like she's just trying to make you get better and nothing's, you know, she's never going to be pleased. Yeah.
1: No, Cheryl was definitely one of the great leaders I was lucky enough to work for. Shortly after I joined Google, I had to give a presentation to the founders and the CEO of the company about how the AdSense business was doing. And I was a little nervous to begin with. And then I walked into the room, and in one corner, there is Sergey Brin, one of the co-founders, standing on an elliptical trainer, pedaling away in toe shoes. And and, And in the other corner of the room, Eric Schmidt, who was CEO at the time, is so deep in his email, it's like his brain has been plugged into the machine, and he's not even in the room. And so, like any normal person in this situation, I I felt a little nervous. How was I supposed to get these people's attention? Luckily for me, the AdSense business was on fire. And when I said how many new customers we had added over the past two months, Eric, the CEO, almost fell off his chair. He said, this is incredible. What do you need? Do you need more marketing dollars? Do you need more engineering resources? And so I'm thinking the meeting's going all right. In fact, I now believe I'm a genius. And I walked out of the room. I walked past Cheryl, and I'm expecting a high five or a pat on the back or something. And instead, she says, why don't you walk back to my office with me? And I thought, wow, I've screwed something up, and I'm sure I'm about to hear about it. And Cheryl began the conversation by telling me about the things I had I had done well in the meeting, not in the feedback sandwich sense of the word, the sort of yeah. uh, kiss me, kick me, kiss me. Uh, I got good uh, wh- news, yeah. I got bad yeah. news.
0: Which one do you want?
1: Yeah, and, and all the good <laughs> news is insincere and not very specific. So, not in that sense of the word at all. She's actually telling me some things that, that I wasn't aware of, but of course, all I wanted to hear about was my mistake. And eventually, Cheryl says to me, You said yeah. I'm a lot in there. Were you aware of it? And I kind of breathed this huge sigh of relief because if that was all I had done wrong, who really cared? I had a tiger by the tail. And I sort of made a brush off gesture with my hand and I said, yeah, I know it's a verbal ticket, It's no big deal, really. And then Cheryl said, I know this really good speech coach and I bet I could get Google to pay for it. Would you like an introduction? And once again, I made this brush off gesture with my hand and I said, no, I'm busy. Didn't you hear about all of those new customers? I don't have time for a speech coach. And then Cheryl stopped, and she looked right at me, and she said, I can see when you do that thing with your hand, I'm going to have to be a lot more direct with you. When you say um every third word, it makes you sound stupid. <laughs> now, she's got my full attention. And some people might say it was mean of her to say I sounded stupid, but in fact, it was the kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career, because I wouldn't have gone to see the speech coach if she hadn't if she hadn't used just those words with me. And when I did, I realized, you yeah, know, watched myself on the video, one of life's more painful experiences. Yes. Avoid it if you possibly can.
0: I will no longer do it. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I watched myself on the video and I realized Cheryl was not exaggerating. I literally said um every third word. And this was news to me because I had been giving presentations my entire career. I had raised millions of dollars for startups giving presentations. I thought I was pretty good at it. It was almost like I had been walking through my entire career with a giant hunk of spinach between my teeth. And nobody had told me it was there. I could get it out if I knew about it. So this really got me to thinking why had no one told me and what was it about Cheryl that made it so seemingly easy for her to tell me? And in the case of Cheryl, as I thought about it, it, really was it really did boil down to those two things, care personally, challenge directly. Everyone who worked directly with Cheryl knew that she cared about them, not just at a sort of professional level, but at a human level, I just heard from a friend of mine who used to work for Cheryl, doesn't anymore, whose house burned down. And she said Cheryl practically came and collected her from the hotel that she and her family had checked into and brought her to her house. So when you work with Cheryl, you know she cares personally. And it's not just about that job. It's for life. And that is huge. And that's not the kind of thing, of course that Cheryl can do for the whole world or for the 5,000 people in her organization at that time at Google, there's a lot more now. But it is the kind of thing that she could do for the people who work directly with her. Mm -hmm. And even though relationships don't scale, culture does scale. And when you do, when you show the people who work directly with you that you care about them at a human level, they have a tendency to then treat their people the same way. And that is what creates culture, and culture does scale. So that's care personally. But the other notable thing about Cheryl was that she was never shy about telling people when they were making a mistake, even if it was going to sting a little bit in the moment. And it wasn't that she wasn't concerned about our short-term feelings, but she was able to move beyond that kind of ruinous empathy that paralyzes us in the face of someone's likely short-term hurt feelings towards what I call compassionate candor, towards focusing on what is in their long-term best interest and making sure to say those things. So that was an early experience with radical candor for me.
0: Fantastic story. One of the things that you talk a lot about in the book is this notion that, and you said it at the very beginning, actually, that if it's the manager's job to give feedback, it's also the manager's job to solicit feedback on themselves. Yeah. And that strikes me as you know, thinking back on a lot of people that I've worked with, particularly work for in my career, hopefully none of them are listening because I'm going to be critical of them. <laughs> they were almost completely unwilling to listen to any critical feedback, didn't solicit it and would have resented it had it ever been presented to them. I'm not kidding. At very senior levels, you know, it was like, hey, yes. um, this is where I'm at and take me as I am and I don't need to be improving. And this is very misaligned to what you're recommending. So how do develop the courage and toughness and even the self-security to let people criticize you as the manager?
1: Yeah, it is so important. I was talking to a person the other day who was looking for a new job, and he said to me, you know, I want to be the CEO of the company because if I'm the boss, then everybody has to deal with my neuroses. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas if I'm the employee, then I have to deal with their neuroses. And I thought, this is like, you need to go back to management 101 school, my friend. So I think it is so important as a leader, first of all, to remember, I think Andy Grove, who was the CEO of Intel, put it very well. He said, snow melts at the periphery. And when you're the CEO of an organization, if you don't take the time to learn what is happening at the periphery, The world will change around you and you'll be the last to know. (laughs) And so going into a leadership position with that mentality, that if I don't take the time to solicit feedback about what's going on with me, then the world is going to have changed around me and I'm going to be the last person to know. I'm not going to innovate in time I'm not going to fix problems in time, and I'm doomed to failure. And so the feeling of urgency to solicit feedback should be intense for leaders. And there's so many good stories about this. But I think if we boil it down to what are some specific things you as a leader can do to solicit feedback, it can help your listeners make a change today. So thing number one, the first step is figuring out What's going to be your go-to question? What are the words you're going to use to ask for feedback? Because if you say, do you have any feedback for me? You are wasting your (laughs) breath. I can already tell you the answer. Oh, no, everything's fine. Nobody, with the possible exception of your children, if you have them, wants to give you feedback. And so wants to criticize you. And especially if you're the boss, nobody wants to criticize you. People are afraid of you. Even if you don't perceive yourself as a scary person, people are afraid of you. So how are you going to ask? Now, the question I like to ask is, what could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? But for other people, they could never imagine asking that question. Krista Quarles when she was the CEO of Open Table told me I could never imagine those words coming out of my mouth. The question I like to ask is tell me why I'm smoking crack. So <laughs>
0: that's
1: also a perfectly good way to to ask the question. Not
0: very adoptable, let's call it, you know.
1: Yeah, doesn't work for everybody and if someone, you know, haven't you better make sure nobody on your team has a serious drug addiction because then that's an unkind thing to say. But the point is that you need to find words that work for you, that you can imagine yourself saying. And then, of course, you need to adopt those words for the people around you. So, for example... Jason Rosoff, who I started a small company that rolls out radical candor at different organizations with, he told me he hates my question because it's so vague, he doesn't know how to answer it. So for him, I had to adopt the question and and say, what could I have done in that meeting that would have made it more effective or something that's more time bound for him feels easier to answer. So you want to make sure the words are natural to you and that they are adapted to the people who you're working with. And so just take a moment to think about one person. This is a challenge to everyone listening to this. One person who you want to solicit feedback from and plan the question you're going to ask. Okay, so now you've got your great question, your question that shows you really want to know the answer, your question that can't be answered with a yes or a no, because it's going to be answered with a no, if (laughs) if possible. And now you ask the question. Step number two is you want to embrace the discomfort. Because once again, you've put someone, when you ask them for feedback, you put them in a very awkward situation. And you're probably going to get silence. And what you want to do is learn to sit with that silence until the other person speaks. So just count to six.
0: Silence you couldn't, you couldn't is last. not always the answer, though. Sometimes it's defensiveness. Were you counting out six seconds there? Is that yes, what you're doing? I was counting I'm out sorry. six. Was,
1: no, I'm glad. I'm, if I I made it all the way to five. You're more comfortable. Usually people interrupt me at two, se- <laughs> two
0: seconds. <laughs> I'm in the advanced group. I, I picked it up and then I thought, well, I'm not so sure. So. <laughs>
1: maybe, maybe I lost her. No, the point here is that almost no one can endure six seconds of silence. So if you say... What could I do or stop doing that would make it easier to work with me? And then you count to, and it's like one, 1,000. You count to six slowly in your head. Odds are the person's going to say something. So now you've dragged this poor soul out on a conversational limb. They never wanted to go on. Now your job is to listen with the intent to understand, not to respond. So you want to make sure that you are really taking the time to understand what the person is trying to tell you and that you're managing your own feelings of defensiveness. It's natural. Even though you've just asked for feedback, when you get it, it's going to sting a little bit. And it's normal to feel defensive or guilty or whatever. So, for example, my daughter the other day at breakfast said, mom, I wish you weren't the radical candor lady. And immediately I assumed I knew what she meant. And this wave of parental guilt washed over me. I thought, oh, I'm spending too much time writing. I'm spending too much time on the road speaking. I'm traveling too much. She wants me at home more, and I felt terrible. And then I thought, well, I'm jumping to a lot of conclusions here, and I may not understand, so let me try to understand what she's saying. So I said, well, who do you wish I were? And she looked at me, and she said, I wish you were the lady who minded her own business. <laughs>
0: no, I totally
1: misunderstood the feedback. In fact, I could take a few more work trips. That was just fine. So I think that it's important to take the time to really make sure you're understanding what it is this person is trying to tell you. But it's not enough not to get defensive. If all you do now is you say, thank you for the feedback, that's going to sound like a big brush off to the other person. The fourth step and the most important step probably in all of this is you've got to reward the candor when you get it. You've gotta make sure that if you agree with the feedback that you fix the problem and that you tell the person that you fix the problem and how you fix the problem and that you ask, did you go far enough? Did you go too far? Sometimes we overcompensate when we get some feedback and that's okay too. That's actually not a bad thing to shoot for. But you want to make sure that you are attentive to what you did, that you make sure that the person knows what you did to fix the problem and that you get some more feedback. Did you go far enough? Did you go too far? Now, sometimes you're going to disagree with the feedback, and that's okay too. You don't have to always say, thank you, sir, may I have another? Mm-hmm. That's, that's Punch not, me again, please. Yeah, exactly. You want to make sure that if you do disagree with the feedback, though, that you demonstrate openness to feedback by finding the five or 10% in whatever was said that you can agree with. And then saying, I wanna think more about the rest of it. And then you wanna make sure that you go back and you offer a fuller and respectful explanation of why you disagree. So disagreement is not always bad for relationships. In fact, it can be quite good for relationships but ignoring someone is never going to deepen your relationship. So make sure that you sometimes, if you disagree with the feedback, the best way to reward it is with a fuller explanation of why you disagree with. Them.
0: Do you go back to them at some point and say, "Hey, yes. you know, I'm hoping by now you've seen that I've made some improvements here. Please let me know." Or you know, is there any closing the loop on this?
1: When you agree with the feedback, closing the loop is. I I took this action, did it go far enough, did it go too far? And ideally you state it in public. So and so told me that you all hate the tea in the break room and now we have this new kind of tea and I wanna get your feedback if I've got it right now. I I mean, I'm taking a silly Mm -hmm. example, Mm -hmm. something that's easy to fix. If you disagree with the feedback, you find that five, 10% of what you do agree with. And I would go back a day later so you're in a less defensive frame of mind, But I would offer that fuller explanation of why you disagree. And at some point, you need to listen, challenge, commit. So you've listened to the other person, you've challenged them. And then if you're the leader, you do get to say at a certain point, look, we're going to do it. This is how we're going to go. Can you commit to this, even though you disagree? Does that make sense?
0: Got it. Yep, perfectly. Kim, I think, you know, we have a tradition on the podcast where we take a brief break from our conversation. We ask our guests a few questions about them personally, you know, like influences, life philosophy, your interests, and we call this the heartbeat round. So now it's your time to play. And with each of the questions I'm about to ask you, we want you to give us your best instinctive answer and respond to each one in a heartbeat.
1: Okay. Blink responses. I'm ready.
0: Okay, great. You wrote that you really enjoy reading novels. One a week, if you can, which I think is remarkable. What's your favorite novel of all time?
1: Middlemarch by George Eliot is one of the great novels of all time. And in fact, it's often about radical candor. And there's a great deal of manipulative insincerity in the book as well. So I learned so much about the human heart, and also about how to be productive from this Victorian woman, George Eliot. Fantastic. Marianne Evans Cross actually was her name.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Wow. Speaking of writers, what author or philosopher influenced you most in your life?
1: I really love Virginia Woolf as well as George Eliot. One of the most influencing essays I ever read was called The Angel in the House, and it was all about how it was the job uh, – the angel in the house, by the way, referred to this Victorian poem that said that women are so wonderful because they have no wants or needs of their own. They just exist to serve the men around
0: them. Exactly. <laughs>
1: so Yeah, so Virginia Woolf said it was the job of the female writer to kill the angel in the house. Mm. And that sounds very violent, but it is such a powerful myth in our minds. And we we do have to kill it if we're going to be productive partners. And I think in today's age, the angel has left the house and entered the office. So I'd like to take up her call and kill the the angel in the office.
0: Amen. Very good. For HR leaders listening in, one piece of advice you'd give them to advance their organization, their culture, or leadership practices?
1: Be very clear about the difference between development and performance management. I think very often, if you don't design performance management systems to focus on the care personally aspects of development, then sometimes they can actually do more harm than good. Very often... Performance management systems are used as an excuse not to have the development conversations that you need to have sort of daily and weekly as a leader. Then they become like capping a rotten tooth. So you need to make sure that you're designing your performance management systems for a culture of what I call radical candor, but for development more broadly.
0: Great. The trait you admire most in other people? Compassion. Trait you least admire in other people
1: obnoxious aggression.
0: Silicon Valley, Google especially, has really been on the vanguard of leadership innovation. We all know that over the past decade. What's one thing they don't generally do well?
1: I think that Google is surprisingly not as good as it should be at combating what I call the clueless majority, (laughs) really being able to spot unconscious bias and change it.
0: The leadership trait that destroys the most careers.
1: Cruelty and unwillingness to solicit feedback.
0: Your synonym for the word heart. Candor. One quality every candidate for managerial roles must possess. Compassion. What do you want your epitaph to say?
1: Oh, my heavens.
0: Uh, (laughs) I've never uh, asked this question before.
1: uh, I think I want my epitaph to say, can I not die?
0: There you go. (laughs) I think others have have left that on their tombstone. So I hate hate to tell you the answer to that question. Yeah, I
1: know, I know. It's a shame. No, in all seriousness, I think I'd love my epitaph to say Kim really cared about the people around her.
0: A prediction about the future you're pretty sure will come true.
1: I think, I believe, despite all of... The evidence to the contrary right now, that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice.
0: Skill improvement you're working on right now.
1: I'm working on distinguishing between bias, prejudice, and bullying.
0: Wow. And finally, besides love, what does the world need more of?
1: Challenging directly.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so very much for going through the heartbeat round with me, Kim. Your answers were great. I have a couple more questions and then we'll be done. All right. I want to talk about Steve Jobs because you mentioned him in your book and you tell something that sort of surprised me. So thanks to Walter Isaacson, who did his biography. You know, we all have this image of sort of like this mercurial, even often hot-headed, not somebody who cared about how people felt based on his communication. We're talking about Steve Jobs here. Yes. And then you said in the book that while you were there, 90% of Apple employees were positive about him as their CEO. More, then,
1: than ni- more than 90, it was unbelievable.
0: I mean, that's an unbelievable number. And then you talk about Dick Costello at Twitter when he was the CEO, and you said that he was the master of connecting with the emotions of his employees, and he had even higher score than Jobs. So yes. what can we learn from these two?
1: So Dick Costolo is not mercurial. He's very even-keeled, <laughs> and what you would think of more naturally when you think of care personally, but you've got to remember that even with with somebody like Steve Jobs, who was very emotional, very committed to his strong opinions, just because he's mercurial or emotional doesn't mean he doesn't care. He built really strong relationships with his direct reports. In fact, Tim Cook offered to give him a portion of his liver when Steve was ill and Steve rejected the sacrifice. And I don't know of a word to explain that other than love. These two people really cared beyond deeply about one another. And so it's so hard from the outside to judge the relationship between two other people. And so I think, for example, in the documentary, Triumph of the Nerds, there's a bunch of outtakes that got published much later. And there's a bunch of interviews with Steve Jobs. You can see this thing. It's called The Lost Interview. And the interviewer says to Steve, you know, I hear you sometimes say to people, your work is shit. And for any normal person, that would be classified as obnoxious aggression. And so the interviewer is looking for Steve to offer some kind of explanation. And he says, so what did you mean by that? And Steve kind of looks at him like he's missing something. He says, well... Usually, I meant your work is shit. Like, (laughs) it seems pretty clear. And the interviewer says, well, so-and-so says what you really meant is, I didn't quite understand that. Could you explain it to me? And Steve, again, kind of laughs and says, no, that's not usually what I meant. But then he pauses and he says, look, when you're working with a group of people who are really great at what they do and super confident, it can be hard to let them know when their work isn't good enough. It can be really hard to let them know. And you want to be able, as the leader, because it's your job to hold the bar for excellence, you want to be able to tell them in a way that leaves no room for ambiguity when their work isn't nearly good enough, but also reassures them that you have confidence in their abilities. And that's a hard thing to do. And so very often, I think... Part of the sort of harshness surrounding Steve may have to do with relationships that we can't judge from the outside.
0: Exactly. The caliber of people he's working with. That's fantastic insight. Thank you. But,
1: yeah, I mean, on the I'm not going to judge. I didn't know him personally, and I'm not going to judge. If you read his daughter's biography, you could come away with a different perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. I understand. But we're really not talking about personal. We're talking about the professional relationship and how people perceive them at work. So yeah. that works. I could talk to you all day about this and wish we could. But before I let you go, there are so many details involved with managing that radical candor or compassionate candor, as we're calling it now, that we didn't have time to get into. So as you think about what we've been talking about for the last 50 minutes. Is there some important point that wasn't surfaced that you'd like to make in closing?
1: Yes. I think one of the parts of the book that I am proudest of, but that doesn't get talked about very much, is the sort of get stuff done wheel, which I talk about towards the end of the book. And if you think about your job as a leader, your job is to create a culture of feedback, build a great team, but ultimately to get stuff done. So how do you How do you get stuff done in the radically candid way? I think it begins with listening and then helping people to clarify their thinking. So often new ideas are fragile and so easily just trampled. You wanna make sure that you're creating a space with each of your direct reports to help nurture new ideas. But then once a new idea is a little more mature, you want to make sure that you're also creating a culture of debate on the team so that you can bring more people in and debate the merits of this new idea. And after that, you don't want to be the decider necessarily, but you want to make sure that the whole organization knows who the decider is and by when the decision will get made. And so often big arguments erupt in meetings because half the people think they're there to debate the idea and the other people, half of the people think they're there to decide. And so it creates all this sort of meta angst. So if you can make it very clear when you're having a debate and when you're making a decision. And once you've made a decision, it's very tempting to expect people to just start executing on that decision. But you're missing a step if you do that. You got to take the time to persuade others that this decision is the right way to go. You can't just dictate. Telling people what to do doesn't work. So you've got to use your persuasive skills. Now it's time to execute, (laughs) finally. And it's so tempting as a leader to jump to that execution phase. But when you're leading a group of people, You've got to make sure that everyone is paying the collaboration tax, and that's the listen, clarify, debate, decide, persuade, but that the tax isn't too high. you got to minimize the tax. you got to keep it to its minimal level. That means you need to leave as much time as possible for people to execute, and then you've got to learn whether or not – The execution was good, or maybe the decision was bad. And then you got to start the whole damn thing over again. You got to start listening, clarifying. And this, I think, is one of the most important aspects to being a radically candid leader and one that is often
0: overlooked. We'll leave it there. All right. Thank you so very much. This is a very, very cool thing to have you on and to discuss this with you. And thank you so very, very much on behalf of my entire listeners.
1: Thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you for asking good questions.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. Best of success with your new book.
1: All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Take care.
0: Before we go, I'd like to acknowledge our many new listeners and personally welcome you. Honestly, it's the rapid growth of our audience that encourages us to keep going and I'm especially grateful to all of you who've reached out to me personally on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and email to share how our work has enriched you personally in some meaningful way and I want you to know that just means the world to us. And just in case you don't already know my background, I'm the author of a book that shares the same name as this podcast and that book, Lead from the Heart, is being taught in nine American universities, and from what I've heard, one in Ireland too. To be quite candid, many people hear that title and they immediately assume I'm either a nut or a spiritualist or somebody who simply doesn't get business, and that's how much built-in resistance there is to bringing any amount of heart into workplace leadership. But I believe our traditional ways of managing people are failing. And with remarkable scientific proof to back me, that caring about and supporting the human needs in people is the only way we'll restore workplace engagement. And to punctuate that point very directly, this is only not a soft message, it's really the future of workplace leadership. And so my goal with this podcast is to intentionally introduce you to cutting edge thinkers whose own work provides meaningful validation for the lead from the heart philosophy and to help prove the future of workplace management demands greater balance between mind and heart. I'm both a professional speaker and a culture and engagement consultant, and I invite you to reach out to me if I can help you or your organization in any possible way. I wanna thank my wonderful team of supporters, including Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, Kerry Finnessy, webmaster Randy Yant, and the guy who turns straw into gold, my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. As always, I leave you with my constant reminder, when you leap from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley, thanking you for listening and signing off for now.